we are working our way through Second Peter. We're on chapter two. The title this morning, the title this morning is "When Sin Becomes Fatal." When sin becomes fatal. Second Peter two ten to sixteen. And obviously it slices into the middle of a sentence, but I'll set some context and and go back in just a minute. And especially those, it's talking about how God, he just got finished saying, God knows how to reserve certain people under punishment until the day of judgment. False teachers in particular, and those that follow them. God is able to reserve people under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what he just finished saying. Now he's going to continue. And especially those who indulge the lusts of defiling passion and despise, despise authority. Pay attention to those words. They are bold and, and willful. They, they do not tremble. So you can see the kind of heart we're talking about. Despising authority, willful, no trembling, no regret, no fear, as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals. Wow. A little insulting, isn't it? Creatures of creatures of instinct. So you can see instincts, and you see passions. This is what governs them. Those two things. Creatures of instinct, and and you think back in that little note there to chapter one, verse four, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. This is not a light text, is it? Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their blots, blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, they entice unsteady, unsteady souls. And I thought of Ephesians 4.14, so that you may be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. My goodness. Forsaking the right way, they have, they have gone astray. They have followed after the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. 
and was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey. Do you remember that story in the Old Testament? Balaam takes a bunch of money to go and prophesy against a certain group of people just for cash. And he's on his way and the donkey stops because he sees an angel of the Lord with a sword and the donkey stops and Balaam gets out and he starts beating the donkey to get moving and then the donkey turns around and says, what are you hitting me for, you idiot? We they have followed the way of Balaam, these false teachers, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrain the prophet's madness. I think we better pray before we look at this text. Away forever the silly notion that the only work the Holy Spirit wants to do is to make us all happy. Away with the silly notion that every time we come to church, we're supposed to be soothed and stroked and comforted. Here are the apostles' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to churches. And we want to respond joyfully when texts give us things to celebrate with great joy. We want to approach texts like this with carefulness and trembling in our hearts. Both are perfectly scriptural responses given the different content of the word in different places. And so come and accomplish your will in this place. We really don't want anything other than that. Come and accomplish your will in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter continues his horribly uh, descriptive passage about false teachers who will secretly arise in the church and he says many will follow them. So in our text today he starts to articulate he starts to articulate just exactly what it is that makes their actions so wretched so apparently deserving of God's wrath and judgment we need to clear up our thinking here. I mean, there have always been sinners in the church. How many sinners do we have here today? Can I see your hand? See, the disturbing thing there, there's about six people and you didn't put your hand up. God has always been in the salvage business with people like we. We sing that. I love that chorus. God so loved the world. That he gave his only, we sing that one, and, and there's a line in it, I might not have it exactly right, but that word salvage, he salvaged me. So, so here's, here's a text talking about people that aren't going to be salvaged. Like, that's striking. You can tell from the tone of Peter's words, there's a specific kind of sin that's being dealt with. He's warning of a, a kind of attitude that can creep into the heart that, that defiles people in a way that makes them past reclaiming. He's dealing with an attitude that just ripens people for wrath and judgment. And he's reaching words to describe what, what happens when 
a situation where sin becomes fatal. We're going to look at four ideas in this text. We'll do one today and we'll do three next teaching time, which won't be next Sunday because it's World Impact Sunday, but after. So here's the idea today. Point number one. The most destructive sins are sins committed against a knowledge of the truth. I get that from verses 10 and 11. And, and especially those who indulge the lust of the flesh, lust of defiling passion, and, and, and despise authority. Those are important words. Bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. I'll talk about those in, in the next teaching. Despise authority. Bold. Willful. Do not tremble. And then you notice those first two words, and especially. They link up with the idea... I said I'd do this. They link up with the idea from verse 9 in last teaching. How the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now today, and especially those who, and he goes on. These people, especially, God will hold for stern judgment, says Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Which people? Those. Who are these people? Well, people who commit to a path of sin and despise authority while doing it. There. They despise authority. How do they despise, despise authority? Well, by ignoring There'll be leaders, there'll be pastors, there'll be teachers, there'll be study leaders, there'll be family members, there'll be a husband, there'll be a godly wife. But these people won't hear it. They won't, they won't hear correction. By ignoring the advice and the rebuke and the counsel of others, by not heeding that 119, by not heeding that more sure prophetic word to which you do well to give attention. They don't, they don't give attention. There's no voice that will change their minds. They despise authority. They're committed to rebellion. I think there are two similar yet different ideas here. There's Committing sin, I think we understand that. And then there's hating the voice of the truth. And it's the second that Peter is describing here. This is what Peter means when he says they're, they're bold and they're willful. They don't tremble, he says. You can, you can show them they're wrong. You can tell them they're wrong. You can urge them. You can plead with them. And they hate it. What you're looking at here is 
is Peter trying to show the difference between sin and presumptuous sin. It's the difference between sin as an act of disobedience, weakness, blindness. The difference between that and sin as a a willful persistence against every check, against every warning. Every warning of the word, every speaking of conscience, every Christian brother or sister that tries to call back to the truth. There There is just... Nothing as damning as committing yourself to a course of sin, a a path of sin, a pattern of actions that just perpetuates itself, feeds itself into deeper corruption. All sin, all sin hurts. All sin brings guilt. Scheming sin. Persistent sin hardens the sinner against his own repentance. And the lights start to go out. And they're usually the last ones to know it. So, in these verses, Peter says that God will reserve sinful people for judgment. That's in 9b, the last part of verse 9. Especially... That's the word used in our text. Especially if we're doing two things. And we need to look at those two things. Especially for those, verse 10, who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. The the verb there is indulge. That's the one you want to look at. Right? Let me just clean this up a little bit for you. This word. This is the first thing they do. So this is not a fight against sin. We struggle with sin, don't we? We find things in our hearts and lives. Sometimes we let them go too long. We see them and we feel badly. I can't tell you the number of times, you know, I I find myself thinking, "How, how long have you been following Jesus? Seriously, you're carrying that attitude around in your heart. Do you ever do that? These people don't. They indulge. So this is not a Romans 7 situation. This isn't, this isn't like these words. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. You've had this experience. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. So I got, I, I, I got it up here. What I want to be. What I ought to be. And then... And then I, I do things that are contrary to that. Boy, I hate that. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a whole theology there. I'm not, I'm not getting into it. I'm just saying you, you, that heart is very different. No, our text in 2 Peter is a different situation entirely. It describes a commitment to persist in sin. It's not a fight against sin. It's indulging it. There's a calculated scheming not to be caught by brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You start twisting the truth outwardly with your lips, inwardly with your mind and heart. A calculated effort to prolong and deepen sin's perceived pleasure. There's the first reason there'll be judgment especially against these people. There's, there's, there's something else that they do. In verse 10, especially for those who, who despise authority. So it's a, it's a uh, calculated evasion of correction. There's people who don't go to church regularly because they feel guilty when they go to church. And if they stay home and just watch TV and cut the grass, they won't feel guilty. So they think they're coming out ahead staying home. Of course they're not. They're making things worse. <laughs> they're making it less likely that they're going to hear the Lord speak next time. But there's that kind of scheming, that kind of calculating. It's, it's, the, it's despising authority. They justify their sin. They calculate their future in their sin. They become stubborn in it. Sometimes they pretend. They tell themselves they'll repent later on down the road. They scheme in their sin. So those two things. They indulge and they despise authority. Now, let me just hold up. So, so that's a pretty bleak passage there from Second Peter. Let me hold up some other passages that I think come at the very same subject, so you'll see it's a, a pretty repeated emphasis in the New Testament. Look at James 1.21. James writes and says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Why doesn't he just say wickedness? this word here for? Wouldn't the text carry the same weight, therefore put away all filthiness and wickedness? What's rampant wickedness? And of course what he's talking about is when, when certain sins become socially acceptable, both in the body of Christ in some cases, but certainly in the surrounding culture, when certain sins become so acceptable that to stand up against those sins isolates you, sin becomes rampant. And it's harder and harder and harder to resist because you can't, you can't resist it without paying a cultural price. Rampant wickedness. Put away filthiness. Rampant wickedness. And then he says, receive with meekness the, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Isn't that a positive message? Able to save your souls. This will work. The subject of the verse is clear. It's a verse about, well, it's a verse about becoming clean. It's a verse about how uh, rampant wickedness and filthiness. It's about how ordinary people like we can lay those things aside. God has made abundant provision for that in his word. James says God's word, God's word has the ability, think about it, to save your soul. That's amazing. God's word, what we're doing right now, if, you'll, if you hear this, 
with meekness, this can save your soul, what we're doing now. But it doesn't seem, it seems kind of ordinary. We do this all the time. No, this can save your soul. This can make you clean. But here's the trick. All of the power of the word will lie dormant and useless until, until this happens. It's not, it's, not the, it's not the word. It's the implanted word. So just reading it won't get the job done. When I was a kid, somebody gave me, I don't have it anymore, someone gave me a Bible, and at the front, it was very common back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, and it said, this book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. You ever heard that before? That's what was in the front. It's, it's, it's not true, but it's very nice. You can, read this, you can read this book till Jesus comes back and be committed to a life of sin. It's not reading the book, it's the implanted word. The implanted word. Just reading it won't get the job done. Just memorizing it won't get the job done. Just knowing what's in it can leave lives dirty and chained to sin. So James says, no, the word has to be received with this, meekness. So think back now, our Second Peter text. These people are willful, proud, despisers of authority. You see the difference between that and receive with meekness. See the difference? Meekness. But don't miss what he's talking about. It takes no humility to believe Jesus is the Son of God. That last chorus we sang, that, that's my favorite. Jesus, the one true God. There are Incredibly few worship songs that come right out and say the words, Jesus, you are God. I love that. But it takes no humility to believe Jesus is the Son of God. It takes no humility to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. It takes no humility to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. What does James mean when he says the word must be received, the implanted word, with meekness? He means this, not doctrinal stuff. How That's incredibly important, but that's not what he's talking about here. He means there will be specific times when I'm reading the Bible and the Word of God confronts me with truth that is just very, very specifically against the grain of my life at that moment. Ethically, morally. So not just theological data, but truth that confronts the way I'm living. Truth that forces me to admit, boy, what I said to so-and-so, I was wrong. You know what? The way I've been spending my money all on myself is wrong. You know what? The things I've gotten very comfortable with watching on TV, I've just been wrong. That's, that's the meekness part. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Not the doctrine of the Trinity. What you're watching on Netflix. Do, do you let Jesus speak to you about that? And when he does, do you hear it with meekness? 
here's the point. Not receiving God's correcting word with meekness. Let's admit it up front. That is the specific kind of wickedness James and Peter are addressing. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible sin not to listen meekly to God's correcting truth. And James says, it's what I do with the word at that point. It's how I respond either with pride and evasion or meekness and tears and repentance. That's what determines whether this word is going to save my soul. That's where it comes in. That's exactly where Peter says these false teachers and those who follow them are missing the boat. And he says, it's not me. He says they are especially reserved for judgment. Let me give you, let me give you another of my favorite passages on the same subject. You know these words. Let's look at Psalm 19. Talking about the law of God. Moreover, by keeping them is your servant warned. Sorry, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And as he thinks about it, who, who can discern his errors? Who's up to this? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from these. Presumptuous sins. Let them not have, ooh, dominion over me. And then I shall be, is this possible? Blameless. Innocent of great transgression. Let 14, let's read it all together. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Notice that word blameless in verse 13 right there. Can that be right? It's got to be scribal error or something. Is, is, is the psalmist claiming sinlessness like Jesus? No, it's not that. But he is describing this condition. This is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. A condition of constantly being made pure. Isn't that how you want to live your Christian life? Constantly being made pure. He's talking about living not sin-free, but living stain-free. He's describing... How can I say it? He's describing a condition, walking before the Lord in such a way that no inward sin is left to become carcinogenic. Constantly be being made pure. Constantly being made clean. Constantly, here's the way, here's the way John would describe it, walking in the light. When David says, moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there's great reward... 
He's talking about the reward isn't cash. He's talking about the great protecting, keeping work of the Word of God. But as he writes of these great blessings, he he realizes there's a way this whole inner soundness can be short-circuited, nullified. There are errors, sins that lie just under the surface of our lives. That one. And if we're not alert, we won't even see those things growing. They're growing. So David says, if we're not careful, sins can turn into 13 great transgressions. How does that happen? And, and the clue to what that means is found back at the beginning of that 13th verse. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Now we're back to Second Peter territory. Presumptuous sin. Those are the kind that rule the perpetrator. Presumptuous sins are sins committed with scheming, hiding, justification. Those sins, those sins will rule the perpetrator. They're committed with a stubborn, rebellious heart. Presumptuous sinners scheme their way into continuing, presuming it's, it's fine. It's fine. I'm no worse than a lot of people at Cedarview Community Church. I go to church as often as a lot of them do. We're pretty busy. Jesus understands. Scheming. Sins against advice. Sins against counsel. Sin against the pleading of friends, loved ones, parents, spouses. Presumptuous sins, they're, they're committed against all advice, all reason. They set the will on a course that's committed to future sin. David says the same thing as James about the place of the word in all of this. Did you notice it? It's in the fourth verse. I'll, let me just separate it out. It's in the 14th verse. Let the words of my mouth and and the meditation of my heart. You know what that is? That's, That's the planning. It's the planning of my future. That's where I do that in my heart, my meditations. My when I think about my next steps, that's that's my meditation. When I justify what I'm doing, that's my meditation. When I blame somebody else, that's my meditation. And, and he says, let my meditation be pure. <laughs> let my meditation be pure. Help me not to be my own worst enemy. The things said, admitted, and the things meditated on, planned in the heart, they have to be shaped and molded by the word of God. I must instantly say yes with my lips and then yes with the meditations of my heart where I stop planning any future rebellion. So remember where we are. I'm I'm finishing now. Peter says people who indulge the lust of defiling passions and then 
and then despise the correcting voice, verse 10. It says they're in a hopeless situation. They're in a hopeless situation. Because the only thing that keeps the only thing that keeps a single sin from turning into a chain of sins is humbly hearing the word when the Spirit speaks. Where it becomes implanted because of my meekness. And the lights go back on. That's what Peter meant in that last, in this text, 119. We have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now, now you can realize this is understatement when Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to it. I guess, after what we just studied this morning, you do well. You do well. So that doesn't just mean... You know, your, your devotions, the morning will look a little brighter for you if you have your devotions. No, no, no. He's talking about avoiding judgment. You'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's called walking in the light. 